0: Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by The Englert. In this episode, we'll hear from Damani Phillips, Director of Jazz Studies at the University of Iowa. We'll also be chatting with poet Stephen Willis and everyone's favorite vegan chef, Katie Meyer. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is supported in part by Goodfellow Printing, a premier sponsor of The Englert Theater. Goodfellow Printing is a full-service printing company with more than 70 years of experience serving our community through printing services and support of the arts. Visit Goodfellow Printing at 408 Highland Court in Iowa City, or send an email to bob at goodfellowprinting.com for all of your printing needs. Music education, like all education, looks very different this year for students and teachers. At the University of Iowa School of Music, rehearsal halls won't be booming with a full orchestra, small groups won't be sprawled in the halls to work on their history papers, and the opportunity for students and staff to share their hard work and their studied craft with a live audience just isn't there in the same way. So how are they adapting? Well, for today's art news, we're taking a look at how the University of Iowa School of Music is navigating education during the pandemic. Over the summer, Voxman Music Building served as a research lab to build a model for managing music education during a pandemic. In collaboration with professionals from the schools of public health, engineering, medicine, music, and facilities management, they worked to create the best solution possible. And teamwork makes a dream work, am I right? The collaboration actually gained international attention, with invitations to present their research from the National Association of Schools of Music, International Double Read Society, and the BBC program Music Matters. Following the study, the fall semester now features a detailed policy plan for everything from practice room to ensembles to courses. The majority of performances for music students, whether in a small group or for a solo recital, will be live streamed throughout the semester. Choirs, bands, and orchestras are adapting by holding virtual auditions and splitting into 8 to 15 people rehearsals standing 12 feet apart in rehearsal halls. And all courses, including history, composition, musicology, conducting, will be taught in a variety of in-person, hybrid, blended, and online versions this fall. To get a better understanding of what this looks like, Engler Executive Director Andre Perry was joined by Director of Jazz Studies Damani Phillips to talk about what it means to educate in the current climate, as well as what it means to be a gigging musician.
1: I'm here with Professor Damani Phillips from the University of Iowa School of Music. Professor Phillips is the head of the jazz program at the university, and has been in our community for a few years. is both a player. And an instructor, and a teacher, um, he's just one of the one of one of the jewels of our of our community here. Uh, Tamaney, as you know, this is a really interesting time in terms of running a university program, in terms of running a school of music. What is what, what does the COVID era mean for you and for your practice, uh, for you as a teacher and a mentor and a program director at the school of music at the university of Iowa?
2: Yeah. Um, without question. Uh, the times are definitely um, uh, taxing on what it is that we are, you know, hoping to do um, teaching music in this era. Um, you know, the thing that ends up being the biggest challenge is the nature of the music that we specialize in jazz is very much by nature of its roots and experiential music. Um, it's really difficult to transmit, you know, um, or to cultivate a budding skill level in the music without actually being able to engage in the act itself. And so, um, you know, if you're blessed, or fortunate enough to be teaching an academic discipline, a classroom discipline, then you can get by in this era without there being a whole lot of sacrifice, apart from having to make some adjustments in how you deliver your the information to your students. But from the music uh, music teacher, or music professor standpoint, it presents some challenges that we are, you know, working our very best to to get around. Uh, we're pretty fortunate in that. Uh, you know, at least we're allowed to for the time being to engage in actual music making with lots of precautions uh, put into place so that we can all be in the the same room together and still play in short bursts. Um, But uh, it it becomes difficult and it's not something that's unique to us. Everyone around the country is really struggling trying to think creatively and outside the box so that we still get a chance to uh, uh, get together and physically engage in the act of music making. And so, you know, part of it is, you know, with knowing what your students need, but at the other time, on the other hand, you want to make sure that everybody involved is safe. Um, it's quite the juggling act, but, you know, when it, all is said and done with, there's really no substitute for you uh, doing and learning through the act of doing, as opposed to um, speaking about it, talking about it, discussing it, that has its benefits, but there's no uh, substitute for us actually being in the same room and engaging in it. And the times are definitely making it, making that a difficult thing to achieve.
1: In terms of putting that program philosophy into practice, does that mean we will see less big band combinations happening from students and we'll see more small combos, more small ensembles, is that where it becomes safe enough to actually um, let these students have the experience of making music?
2: Well, um, fortunately, courtesy of our building and the the scientific data behind how air exchanges in our spaces, we have a few of them in the building that allow us to have up to 15 musicians or people in a room at any given time. But they're all limited to um, 30 minute spurts, at which point everyone must vacate that space and allow for the air to completely recirculate. So that we start fresh with a brand new air of exchange, a brand a brand new room of exchanged air. So we are still going to have something pretty close to a big band, um, and the the combos are relatively safe just by virtue of their um, their usual size. But um, the amount of time, even through in rehearsal and even in performances, which will be also limited, bound by those same rules. Um, where we can't be in a space performing for longer than 30 minutes and having to distance and space all the musicians out. So you'll still get music from us. Like I said, you, there's a lot of, uh, of extra steps that have to be taken to make that happen, but um, it is still going to happen as long as we're able to do it in a way that's been scientifically proven to be safe. And um, I'll give credit to, the, to our uh, new director at the School of Music. She burned a considerable chunk of the summer bringing in scientists to actually run literal tests on our ventilation system and in our building to figure out what spaces we could play in safely and which ones weren't going to be a problem and what parameters you could play in those spaces safely uh, without causing a problem or keeping it safe for everyone who's uh, in the room. They uh, invested a lot of time and energy uh, basing those decisions in terms of the policies on scientific fact and not, you know, supposition or kind of sort of or, you know, uh, imagining what may or may not be. They literally put the time and the energy in to make sure that those decisions were made um, in a in scientifically tested fact about our building. So
1: that's both fascinating and reassuring um, we're, I mean, we're talking about jazz music, which is expansive in its reach and also at the same time in, in many ways represents the soul of America. Uh, mm-hmm. this is a of music that breathes into all, all the other forms we know from rock and roll to rap music, uh, even into electronic music. And so jazz is almost a cornerstone of innovation when you think about American music I mean, even with all these constraints, only being able to play in a room for 30 minutes, not as able to engage with your classmates and your mentors. Do you see a road for innovation in this time for these players?
2: You know, the, the road is definitely made a, a, a tad bit bumpier, but it can be done. Um, you know, there's good work being done in terms of people learning to make music electronically, remotely, remotely. And, you know, it's, it's now becoming almost a forced uh, thing of including the technology component as a means of kind of a binding to the music so that you know, we can still engage in some manner of, you know, music making nationwide. Um, but it, like I said, the road is definitely made a little more difficult, but you can still get good work done. Um, You know, even in the absence of being able to play as much as you want to, I I have always been um, found problematic that in the academic system we tend to exclude those uh, those vital conversations about how the music binds with culture. And how uh, the two inform each other, particularly as it relates to African American derived music styles. And so with this space where we aren't allowed to play as often as we want to, you can fill it about you can fill that space up by filling that void within the student so that they understand when they blow that next note that yeah, this comes from somewhere. It happened because of this. Um, and how I play this next note should be informed by that understanding of where this you know, the, the cultural context in which this music was forged. So, you know, it's really about uh filling a student up with as much as you can, give them as much playing experience as you can, make sure that they have historical and cultural context with the hope that they can still move forward and create something that's new and innovative, that's of their you know, crafted of their own, of their own voice. It can be done. It's made to be a bit more of a challenge. It takes a little more time and energy to sort it all out. But um, that I can say without uh, without hesitation that you can still move the needle. It's just again, it's not as um, not as efficient a process as you'd like it to be. It's not quite as um, easy a process to facilitate. But uh, we still see our students, you know, uh, uh, making great strides and going on and you know and engaging in things that kind of affirm the fact that they're um, they're received with high respect around the nation in terms of their, um, their achievements and the kinds of, uh, programs that they're accepted into.
1: I'll just ask one more question, and because I know you have to get back to so much work. Um, you, you've talked a little bit about the work that you're doing as a program director, as a teacher. What about you as the artist? Um, how, how does this change your philosophy and the work that you're doing?
2: Well, you know, um, it's been unfortunate that things have come to such a halt um, and the nature of what we do is being in front of people presenting our you know our innermost feelings to an audience of actual folks and that reciprocal energy between the player and the and the people in the room feeding each other that's you know a, a primary driving force behind what makes jazz both unique and, and gives jazz its um, It's specialness, the thing that separates it from most other styles of music that need to be that it feeds that immediate that immediate uh, the immediate environment that you're in. It feeds off of that energy. And so it's been a little bit tough. But on the other hand, um, just like everyone else, you have to keep progressing and moving forward. Um, And so you play as often as you can. But I'm really thinking along the lines of thinking beyond our current situation, um, times are difficult now but this it won't be this way forever and so um with the with the presumption that uh, our situation will start to improve i've got my eye on you know what comes next so that when uh the clouds part i'm ready to hit the ground running and and uh, and generate some work of our own and not to mention the what's going on culturally and socially around the country there is a a desperate need to, to get some things off my chest. And for jazz musicians, uh, at least I believe it should be uh, a prime outlet for those kinds of things. And as we both know, um, the, the situations, particularly for African-American folks is getting to be a little bit precarious and it's difficult to sit back idly and, and not speak your piece in the way that you uh, most effectively speak for me. And for um, many of our students, it
1: has a lot to do with the, the music they create. And I might even add that it's been precarious. T.J. <laughs> said, <So, so. laughs>
2: perhaps, "Perhaps a better way of putting that is that it has come to a head
1: <laughs> again." Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, we're here with Professor Damani Phillips from University of Iowa head of the jazz program at the School of Music. Uh, thank you again for spending time with us today. We're, we're so honored to have you in this community. Thank you.
2: No, thank you so much for, uh, for the invitation. Appreciate it.
0: Stephen, thank you so much for being here with us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So right off the bat, my, my initial curiosity, um, who or what inspired you to become a spoken word artist and, a, and an actor?
3: Wow. Who or what yep. inspired me to become a spoken word artist? Well, there's a multitude of things. Um, really? Fun fact, the first poem that I ever did was on accident. I was oh. I wanted to be a rapper like everyone from my community does,
0: from,
3: <laughs> you know, from the part of Chicago that I'm from. And I was doing a performance and I left my music. This is back when you we used to burn CDs in the olden days. Mm. I had my music on a CD. And the DJ at the time was like, hey, kid, you're ready to go. I was about 13 years old. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to do my, you know, performance. But I left my music. And the guy goes, so you're doing a poem. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not a poem. It's a laugh. <laughs> and I left my music. And then he looks at me and goes, so you're doing a poem. <laughs> and I love that. I was that. <laughs> and so that next year, I went to high school. And I went to school in Chicago, which has uh, the largest teen poetry festival in the world. It's much bigger now than it was when I was a kid. Um, and it's called Louder Than a Bomb. Yep. And from there, I participated in Louder Than a Bomb my sophomore through senior year. And thought I was done with spoken word. And then it caught me again. I moved to New York. And of mm. all, New York is the mecca for spoken word poetry. You know, you have the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. Back in those days, you had, the, you know, the Urbana, which is now the Bowery Poetry Club. And you had just all of these things. And it just constantly kept appearing in my life as an extracurricular,
0: mm-hmm.
3: as something to do, as something to mm. pass my time. And next thing you know, I was graduating college and I was sleeping on my best friend's floor in, in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, saying mm-hmm. I want to be a spoken word poet full time. And one day I called my mom and said, hey, I'm going to try this poetry thing. And to my surprise, she went, OK.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Because, you know. <laughs>
0: Oh
3: yeah, no, sure. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that means I'm not coming home. That means the day after graduation, you're going to be moving me to my friend's house, not back home to Chicago. Okay. okay. And that was that. I I don't I don't I w- I don't recommend anyone having my <laughs> 21 22 year old hubris. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sure. I don't. But- Sometimes you gotta you gotta yeah. if you're like if you are really going to, I mean, all the greats had to have believed in themselves at least a little bit. Like, yeah. cause that, I mean, making that decision, making that leap is like, for a lot of people, it's, it's really terrifying, like committing yourself to this thing. And like, I mean, it's putting yourself on the line. Like, you know, if I don't succeed at this, you're all going to watch me not succeed at this. I do want to, I want to talk a little bit about that, that teaching element. So yeah. I actually had the privilege of, seeing you perform when you were a featured poet at the IC Speak showcase in right. November. Shout out IC Speak. Shout out Caleb one time. We love Caleb. Um you work with the Iowa Youth Writing Program. You've been a teacher. Um what does that teaching and mentorship mean for you particularly when you're working with young kids? What are you wanting to achieve in those situations?
3: Wow. This is a great question. Um I'm, I'm having a a quarter life crisis,
0: Mm.
3: which comes about when you're about to graduate from grad school at, you know, 28 years old, I'll be 28 when I graduate. And, you know, the question is, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you love? And I decided that it was the teaching and it's because I have always found a pleasure in taking something so complicated, whether it be writing
0: Mm.
3: a sophisticated poem or the entire mechanism of being a good actor and dissecting it and putting it into a formula that Mm. everybody can get it, particularly marginalized communities or communities that may find a particular form off-putting. You know, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm a kid, you know, A heterosexual male from the south side of Chicago. You know, poems were not cool, right? Not (laughs) unless they were using it to get a girl, they weren't very cool. Uh So so it, it became this thing of like, but if I can dissect it to a point to get people to understand its intricacies, to go into a formula and say, hey, this. Those Shakespeare poems that we were listening to in seventh grade or sophomore year in high school aren't as complicated as they look. Silence aren't as complicated and they, and they can reflect our stories too. And finding ways to really bring that to people, I find joy. And I think that's what I do. All my best spoken word poems are that. All my best spoken word poems are taking an element of urban life or Christian life or black life and saying, hey, let me just put this into its smallest pieces to get you to understand the humanity that exists in this thing, the love that exists in this thing, the fear, whatever. And so that's what it is for me, helping people who may may think this isn't for them. I can Mm -hmm. tell it's for them and I can teach them in a way that they can fall in love with it.
0: Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And and beyond, I mean, beyond teaching in like it's conventional format of being in a classroom or doing workshops with people. Um, your poems are. They, it seems like they're always a learning experience. Um, and I'm a huge fan. I'll say it. <laughs> um, I'm a fan. <laughs> um, and the way you like blend the acting with the humor, with pop culture, with um, with linguistics and, and, you know, your ability to be creative with words, um, is like so incredible. Um, and like, I found myself getting very emotional while I was watching him. And what is even crazier is that like, for a lot of what you're talking about, you know, I can't really personally relate to them. Um, And one of them had a comment that really caught my eye. It was on no black boys die on mother's day. Mm. And someone wrote a comment that said, my little brother's friend actually passed away last night. I can't imagine how his mother is feeling. Yeah. So I have to imagine that just the act of writing these poems and crafting them and then performing them so full on, like you, like you always do like that's, gotta be emotional labor but the fact that poetry is you know communicative what what is it like when when people bring their stories to you like that after you've engaged them like i i can't even i can't even imagine
3: that's a great i feel
0: like that has to be a lot
3: um that's a great question it is hmm, how, how do i describe the feeling it is, you know how people say that something's surreal? Yeah, okay. What is the farthest antithesis of that where like it is the realest thing that I've ever mm. done. Um, because it is a rare moment of mutual vulnerability after I go on stage and tell these very visceral stories and I put my whole body in it and someone comes to me and they say, Hey, my brother, you know, was murdered or, you know, I I just lost a family member and they just look at me. Yeah. And we can just look at each other and go really not much talking happens. It's really mm. a lot of breathing, a lot of understanding, a lot of, they almost, they do it for me, which is, which is weird.
0: Hmm. They yeah. do
3: it for me in this way of like, almost as if to say, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's I, I, I often feel that way as if they're consoling me. From me mm. up there and really, because I ripped myself open. I re-put myself into that moment every yeah. single time that I'm there. And yeah. the way that they let me know that I'm not alone is by telling me that they deal with that too. Mm. And it's something about feeling that pain with someone, for even if it's just for three minutes.
0: Yeah.
3: it's It's different. So it's, I don't know whatever the antithesis of surreal is.
0: And I think it's so telling that people are compelled to want to sort of console you in that moment. And that's something I think, I mean, you know, with any art form, music, film, visual art, but I think how something that I love about spoken word poetry is like the whole experience of it is a connection. Like even when, while you're performing, you know, delivering the art, the audience is receiving at the same time. And like, you know, they're they're doing snaps or saying, mm-hmm. oh, you know, they're screaming. Sometimes people scream like they I feel do. you so much. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's everyone feeling the same thing at the exact same moment, which is. And,
3: and can I be honest about something? Yeah. I never anticipated that. Mm. When I became an artist, Okay. So I'm, I'm a black kid from Chicago. You know, we're talking about one of the most segregated cities in the U S there was a statistic that came out some years ago that the average person in Chicago has to walk 20 minutes to see someone outside their race. Right. Mm. So the art was always this thing that gave me different worlds. I knew what white people lived like. Because mm-hmm. McGuire came on TV, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, you, that's that's you. It, you read books. That's how you learn different things about different lines, about different people. That's that was how you, we got our dose of diversity. And so, when I became an artist, even wearing young, I saw my responsibility to let as letting people who aren't like me know what it's like to be.
0: And I, I love that you know. I mean, just going in with, with that idea of, like, being a vessel for, I don't know, learning, learning people, um, which I really appreciate. I think that activism, like, I mean, just today watching the poem where you're, like, personifying the hustle.
3: Yeah. The hustle speaks, yeah.
0: That's, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I totally felt that. And even, like, you know, like, I'm I'm someone who's, like, continually trying to learn and learn and, you know... Um, be empathetic. And a lot of people are, especially right now, you know, there's literally a human rights revolution occurring right before our eyes. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, getting, being able to access those moments like that, where I can truly feel myself emotionally learning and like something sort of clicking and be like, Oh, 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 kind of like that. Like this isn't a statistic. This is like, oh my gosh, like in my soul. Like, yeah. Okay. Okay. So my last question: mm-hmm. What are you working on right now in pandemic mode, and how can people support you right now?
3: So pandemic mode, I've I've begun to write plays. I've been toying with writing plays. Cool. Of course, we're in COVID land, and I'm still. I mean, my. Last year at the university. So I'm teaching at the university and I'm doing my own stuff and how to support me right now is I'm a major poetry educator and I can't get into classrooms, unfortunately, and school doesn't allow me to travel that much. So if people are really, really interested in learning more about me and my work, um, they can apply for, to work with me and do some online workshops. Nice. So They can reach me at stephenwillispoetry.com, inquire about some of that work. I'll be working with a lot of the other Iowa city groups in the future with some of my workshops. And um, so hopefully we can get that started and off the ground soon.
0: Right on. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Everyone (laughs) seriously get on YouTube. Look up Stephen Willis. You will not be disappointed, I swear.
3: (laughs) That's sweet. Thank you.
0: This episode is supported in part by New Pioneer Food Co-op. Your source for locally and responsibly sourced groceries open 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. with senior shopping hour from 9 to 10 a.m. seven days a week. You can also shop online for no-contact curbside pickup through the co-op cart at n e w p i c o o p okay we're back and we're with katie meyer who is the owner and chef of trumpet blossom a vegan restaurant and music venue in downtown iowa city katie it's so good to be talking with you today
4: <laughs> likewise good to see you
0: okay so starting right off um in the pandemic world it <laughs> seems that the hot trend is cooking cookbooks are flying off the shelves. Everyone's watching their, you know, cooking YouTube tutorials. Have you been doing an extra surplus of cooking these days? Yeah.
4: So we were, the restaurant closed on uh, March 15th was the last day that we did dine-in. And then we did to-go's for like two days and it just would, just was, crazy. So Mm -hmm. we closed um, all the way for about six weeks. So I did a ton of cooking at home. I um, probably ate better than I have, like more healthily (laughs) in a long time because I was more conscious of what I was uh, eating and cooking for myself. Um, And I also got to kind of work on some recipes that I had been thinking about or things that i had been thinking about wanting to like add to the menu or try out so that was fun to have um just time to dedicate to that because it's really interesting um having a restaurant and doing that for a living and being in the kitchen um so much like I am at work so that's like my job at work is I cook mm-hmm. the food um you just kind of it's just like perpetual motion and forward motion and you just keep, it's hard to stop and be like, wait a minute, maybe I want to do this and maybe we should try this. And, you know, we change our menus every so often, but there isn't as much flexibility um, unless you just are active about establishing, okay, we're going to stop doing this. i are going to start mm-hmm. doing it this way. So yeah. anyway, um, it was fun to be able to just try new stuff and like, We have a a bakery menu now. Um, So like we make donuts and um, Mm. stuff like that and trying just new items. And um, so I have been cooking a lot more and it has been fun to have more creative freedom. I did not bake uh, a lot of banana bread like everyone did. (laughs) I don't (laughs) have a sourdough starter hiding anywhere in my kitchen. Um, Although that would be lovely. Um, But yeah, lots of cooking. Mm Sweet. Sweet.
0: Uh, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but it's, I don't know if, if this has always been the case, but it seems like today everything is instant gratification. It's go, go, go. Everything's fast paced. Right. Same thing with food. You know, there's fast food, there's TV dinner, there's convenience. But Trumpet Blossom does cuisine and I guess an old school way of, of buying local and, you know, you try to make everything that you can in house. What keeps mm. you loyal to the tradition of slow food in a world that seems to be all about the instant gratification?
4: Yeah, well, there's so many different ways I could answer that. Um, I will say initially, <laughs> sometimes I like to make the joke when we have really busy shifts and we have to make a bunch of stuff, you know, the, before the next shift, I'll be like, whose idea was this to make all this from scratch? <laughs> like, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Cruises. so funny um but i guess so i i guess simply it's just that food is such a personal thing and it's something on a visceral level it's like what we ingest right it's like what we put in our body multiple times a day and it really does <clears throat> it's our fuel um it's it's what makes us who we are and so i feel like if we can take the time to just put a little more thought into it. It would benefit us. It would benefit our environment. Um, food is like the thing that connects everyone to each other and to our community and our earth. Um, so I just feel like if I'm going to do it, I want to, I don't want to cut corners. Um, you know, we don't make everything from scratch, uh, but we, I do, I do, when I'm considering a new menu item it's based on something that we can make it's not like oh I found this new package thing or this is trendy or something like that it's like oh I I want to learn how to make this thing and make it well and make it interesting Mm -hmm. and make it plant-based and so that's really what drives us as a, a business too um And I feel like when you create something that you're putting in the community and you're offering to people and you're charging them money and you want people to support you, (laughs) this sounds so ridiculous to put it like this, but like you have a responsibility to do it in a way that causes good and not harm. And I just feel like there's, you know, if we can do that, and again, like we're not the perfect business and we're not, you know, doing everything perfectly. I don't want to sound like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but if we can find a way to just do it gently and peacefully and in a way that doesn't disrupt good things, then we should try and do it that way. So, um, I don't know. And like, I ate, I've eaten crap and maybe I'll eat crap tomorrow or later tonight or, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't, (laughs) I don't think, Kale salads uh every day, all day. Um but again, and like offering the option to people in the community to have like maybe a, a healthier uh choice or I don't know, it's it's so hard because you want to give people what's good for them, but then you also have to give them what they want, otherwise it's not yeah. sustainable. So you have to find a way to like meld those two things together and just hope that it works.
0: Yeah, a bit of a balancing act. Yes. Always. Yeah. Okay, so we are going to talk about your best show ever. But first yeah. I want to get a sense of what Iowa City was like at this time and
4: maybe like where your personal <clears throat> life
0: was at this time, like maybe how long Trumpet Blossom been
4: open. Sure. So um let's see. Well it's William Elliot Whitmore at Trumpet Blossom. Um, in December of 2013, and it was on the winter solstice, and <clears throat> so we had only been open for like a year and a half, and Will had played a really small show, um, July of 2012, and I knew that I wanted to have him back. I feel like he's a good reflection of like the spirit that we we're trying to embody at the restaurant too, at at Trumpet Blossom, um but anyway iowa city so 2013 uh there were a lot fewer tall buildings there (laughs) Um, (laughs) what else it just so i it's funny to try and remember what the restaurant and what the business was like then because i feel like the first couple years is just a blur because you're just trying you know and I still make tons of mistakes, but you're, you know, Mm -hmm. you're trying things and you're figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And then, um, I'm pretty sure we didn't have a PA at the time. I think Luke brought, Luke and Will brought all the stuff they needed. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it was my personal life. So I did not have a child at that time. <laughs> so my okay. personal life was quite <laughs> different. Uh, but um, yeah, it just, the show was really nice because so many of our friends were there. And it was this weird thing of where Will's like a super um, popular musician in Iowa yeah. and of course throughout the world. Um, so when I first decided to have this, sh- to, Uh, try and have the show you know I contacted him and he was like that sounds good and um, I was like okay well I'm gonna try and keep it on the down low but that's just silly too because then it was like well how do you know we have to tell people what's going on so that they come and it was it was a huge learning experience for me too to be like oh you just you you promote the show and then people come to the show (laughs) you you have no control over who comes to the show and like that's just it's you know that's not how it works so um uh so but it was like a ton of friends and we made it a thing um where we had like a little table with food and we made this uh crazy like sangria style drink and we called it solstice punch uh (laughs) so you like got unlimited solstice punch with your ticket and some snacks and yeah. uh, I know right we should do well we're gonna do things uh we're gonna just the first time we have music we're just gonna have music like a month in a row and <laughs> just a big party um <laughs> Anyway, uh, it was fun. It was nice because, like I said, it was the solstice, and it was so it was like, uh, you know, the day of the year with the least amount of sunlight. So it felt just very cozy and wintry. And it was um a few days before Christmas, so a little holiday spirit and old friends and you know people uh, we didn't know, and um a lot of the staff were there to hang out, which is always fun. Um, it was good. And, like, um I also think uh, – Ross reminded me of this. I think it was the first time – I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong – that Will played electric guitar at a show. Whoa.
0: Anyway, I know. Interesting.
4: <laughs> but, I want everyone to uh, know,
0: like, Will is, like pl- – plays at, like, the Ingler, Like, I think he even sells out the Angler. Like Oh, yeah, is-
4: yeah. He puts on great shows. He always – makes you feel like you're his best friend and that he's talking to you when he's up on stage talking and his Mm -hmm. songs are just beautiful and mesmerizing and like you could hear him a million times and they'll still make you cry and like every song has a gorgeous story if you listen to the words which like I'm a I'm a word person like I like music that has words I like to listen to the words of course I love music Mm -hmm. that doesn't have words but um so I appreciate the storytelling aspect of his music and just kind of the, the bare bones style that he does most of the time is really great. Um, yeah. And we had a, a friend play one of his songs at our wedding when we, when everybody walked down the aisle in our backyard, oh. I asked Will to do it, but he was on tour <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So he's, yeah, he's definitely like, yeah, he's a great guy. And I, uh, I'm so Glad that he was able to play there, and um, and yeah, it was amazing. It was great. all emo. <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like with most of these, it'll either with most special show ever's, it's it's like mostly you know people are focused on the performance and like how outstanding the performer was, or they're thinking about like a time in their lives and the people who are around them. And it seems like this one is sort of the perfect combination of this is the people you're with. <laughs> it's this like special festive time of year. And like, you know, William Elliot Whitmore is like
4: sort of in your circle group of friends. It was pretty great. But yeah, we've just been it's just unbelievable the people Mm -hmm. who I've been lucky enough to have play there just with like Chris Weirzma bringing in people from Feed Me Weird Things and we've had some Mission Creek shows there and Brian Johansson bringing people in and like Mm. um, the punk bands that have been through um, like that Kane has booked and other people have booked and um, yeah it's just it's it's wild it's just wild I just wanted to cook vegan food for people (laughs) it's like (laughs) what yeah so yeah very very lucky i
0: would i would even not say i mean it maybe it feels lucky to you but i i feel like it is just like you know where musicians are attracted to a place that cares about the food they make and cares about the people they bring in and cares about the service they provide and Half off food. That's huge. That is huge. No, musicians, no matter what caliber they're at, you come in, you get half off a slow, traditionally made vegan dish. Like, you know, it's just, I would say trumpet blossom for the soul. That's what I would call it. Forget the soul, whatever it's called. It's trumpet blossom for the soul. Thank you. I think that's the source, the source of the success from my outside perspective.
4: <laughs> I appreciate so. hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I miss it for sure.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on yeah, and sharing you with you. us today. Um, it's made me a little bit hungry. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not in town right now, but as soon as I get back,
4: you guys <laughs> yes, no, give us call. a call.
0: Our song of the week is Icor by Will Jaeger and Gabby Vanek. The track delightfully features Vanek on bassoon and various electronics, and Jaeger on double bass and assorted objects. It comes off their recently released LP, Ghost Actions, which can be heard and bought online at Bandcamp.com. Here it is, "Ichor" from Gabby Vanek and Will Jaeger. <laughs> This episode is supported by FilmScene, Iowa City's nonprofit cinema dedicated to enriching our community through film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains. More than a movie theater, scene regularly hosts conversations, filmmaker visits, partnership screenings, and education workshops in addition to the best in classic and new release films. With two locations in downtown Iowa City... FilmScene is a year-round destination for great movies paired with beer, wine, and Iowa's best popcorn. For films and showtimes, visit icfilmscene.org. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit englert.org friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs.